It's Rexy's musical podcast. In the 1990s, while grunge was busy blowing things up like music charts and radio station playlists across the United States, the UK were being dominated by something very different, something a whole lot more British with a whole lot less flannel. Instead, the UK was being swept up in something that was a little less dark, a little less moody, but every bit as relevant as grunge was here in the US. While grunge was serving as a bridge that brought alternative music into the mainstream, the same thing was being accomplished in Great Britain by bands like Blur, Suede, Pulp, and Oasis. The music had been labeled Britpop, and the mania which surrounded it caused some of the most heated musical debates in years. This was particularly the case between Oasis and Blur. On one hand, these bands couldn't have been more different. The styles, the influences, their backgrounds were fundamentally coming from opposite directions. And yet, the rivalry between these two bands, which may or may not have been a creation of the British music press, was so intense that they're still talking about it 30 years later. The fact of the matter is, between the two of them, Oasis and Blur sold a lot of freaking records, especially in August of 1995, when both released singles on the very same day, with Blur squeezing into the number one spot over Oasis by just less than 90,000 records sold. And people ate that shit up. But the Blur story isn't just about Oasis or Britpop. The Blur story is about a band that went from being totally broke to being one of the biggest selling bands in UK history, period. This is a band that released eight albums, 35 singles, 26 of which reached the British top 40. All total, Blur has sold more than 26 million records worldwide. This is a band whose songs such as Park Life and Girls and Boys and Country House are still considered classics, and their 1997 single entitled Song 2 is a bona fide anthem, which is being played in sports stadiums and arenas all around the world. In July, Blur will be playing at Wembley Stadium in London. 90,000 seats, which sold out in two minutes. In fact, the demand was so great, they added another show due to the intense demand, which is part of their first European tour in years. But the guys from Blur have hardly been sitting around doing nothing. For example, since the band went largely idle in 2006, drummer Dave Roundtree became a lawyer, an animator, a pilot, and a politician. He's also just released his very first solo album entitled Radio Songs, and it's fantastic. In fact, it's received four-star reviews in both the London Times and in Rolling Stone magazine. So in a very real way, Dave Roundtree's life outside the spotlight is every bit as rich and as diverse as the one he enjoyed inside of it. And so it's been a real treat to talk to my guest today, attorney Dave Roundtree from Blur on Baxi's Musical Podcast. I'm great. How are you doing? Good, Good too. Thank you. I, I read something the other day about Blur. I just could not wrap my head around it. <laughs> you guys, you got Wembley Stadium coming up in July. It's got 90,000 seats and you sell it out in two minutes. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the thrust of it's correct. I'm not sure the numbers are exactly right. I think it's 70,000 seats. And in fact, there's two Wembleys and we said that sold out the first in a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so that's. That's a whole lot more easy to understand. You're absolutely right. I was. <laughs> I know. 
it, that t- took us by surprise as well, I have to say. How do you even wrap your head around the speed and the numbers of that? I mean, you guys haven't had a new record out in quite a few years, and here you are, 70,000 <laughs> seats in a matter of minutes. That's extraordinary. I think that's probably why. We haven't played in a long time. You know, people, sort of big, spectacular gigs are far more popular than, than little grassroots gigs at the moment. That's what people want to see is things like Blur getting back together again, Pulp getting back together again. They've just done a similar thing. Lots of bands from the 80s getting back together again. And that's what people want to see. They Bands they know, they want to hear songs they know. That's kind of what's big at the moment. So, uh, but it was a gamble, you know, there was no guarantee that anyone was going to be interested and uh, it took, took us by, as much by surprise as it did, did everybody else, I think. It's very clear you guys have come a long way from uh, just after the release of Leisure when you guys could barely afford lunch and now here you are at, uh, yeah. at Wembley. I, uh, I've been listening to the new record the last couple of weeks, uh, Radio Songs, and I have to say it is a beautiful, tender record and you cannot find anywhere a single bad review of this record people are just flipping out over it. it's just incredible congratulations on this record thank you so much that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said about it you can stay in fact let's just carry on doing yeah, the rest of the day let's carry on doing this <laughs> well i thought i'd get that wembley thing out of the way and then really talk at, uh, about dave roundtree i thought that was a whole lot more interesting <laughs> But this record is is really something. I, I, I'm going to assume as a part of you that's really happy the Gallagher brothers didn't release something in the very same day. <laughs> there was it was mooted the idea of the Gallagher brothers, <laughs> at least one or the other of them, supporting us at Wembley. Yeah. That was a that was a kind of a three a.m. idea somebody had. <laughs> the wiser minds prevailed. I think. <laughs> I think what I what I love about this record is well there's there's a number of things I love on it. I loved uh, I love Devil's Island and London Bridge and A Thousand Miles, but I think what I really respect most about it is I mean you're known primarily as as a drummer and this is definitely not a drummer's album. I mean it, this is there are, you know melodies and hooks and you know there's no temptation to be drop a 15 minute drum solo in the minute in the middle of all, all of this. It's it's something very, very different, and and I think that's actually pretty commendable. There was something about this record that that meant more to you than just showing off that the fact that you're an incredibly great drummer. Well, I, I've been, you know, I don't think I've got much to prove in terms of drumming. You know, I do, I do. People know how I play the drums, and it's not really it wouldn't have been a very interesting project for me, a kind of drum based project. And I didn't want to do the obvious things it was less clear what that left me with you know I wanted to surprise people but fundamentally I you know I see myself as a musician first as a drummer second really and what I like in music is tunes I'm a sucker for a tune so uh, you know I thought I'd try and make an album that I would want to listen to and I think you know where I arrived at the what would be what would be a surprising album to make would be that yeah as long as i didn't make a sort of traditional drummy album with drummy things guitar bass and drums kind of album a sort of a rock album as long as i didn't do that it would be you know that would kind of fit the bill really and that's why i say it because it, it the end result is it's a very listenable album there's something very 
emotional about it. It's it's ambient in a way. And some of these songs, London Bridge would be a perfect example. It's like you can you can get the hook stuck in your head without waiting for you know that Phil Collins drum solo in the in the air tonight. <laughs> you don't have to wait for that. And and I think that was really commendable because you know I mean I play drums too, and I know that the inclination for me would be to take those quieter moments and then fuck it all up with a, with a drum solo. <laughs> yeah, but I guess that's not even, that's not the kind of drumming I do with Blur, you know. No. I, I believe in kind of understating these things, especially on record. So, you know, the temptation was never there to do that kind of thing. There are some drums on it, you know, but it's pretty sparse. Um, a thousand miles is the only one really with a drum part from beginning to end. Um, but that's just how we wrote it. I didn't, I didn't plan it being that way. I wrote it in uh, in Iceland in this beautiful studio in Reykjavik mm. um, with a, a a friend of mine, and you know we hadn't discussed what we were going to do. We just turned up at this studio in the live room. There happened to be a drum kit set up at one end and a piano set up at the other end. So I sat at the drum kit, he sat at the piano, and we wrote this song. So you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't planned that way. I didn't run a million miles from the drum kit when it was when it was there. It seemed quite a natural thing to do. But other than that, really, there's lots of it's it's an electronic album, really, and and it's electronic album because that you know, I'm in my uh, spare room at the moment where I've moved the studio to. I've got some. Uh, uh, some uh, I, I've uh, we've got some Ukrainian refugees living with us at the moment, so I've uh, I've shifted all my stuff out of the studio and moved moved them in there. So there's a lot more space. But uh, ordinarily in my studio, I have uh, instruments to make film soundtracks with. That's what I do, you know, for my day job and have done for the past de- decade or so. So um, that's you know you don't use drum kits on film soundtracks unless they're a very weird film. So, you know, I have the cut those instruments uh, give give the record its texture, really. I, I want to get into some of the things that you do outside of music, because I find that to be absolutely fascinating. And, and, and I will get to that in a second. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the record, and especially your radio songs, the, the, even the title and, the, and the, the motif of the whole record is the inspiration that you drew from these moments of uh, between you and your dad putting together radio kits at the kitchen table, it sounded like that was a really important set of moments for you in a situation where you have a very complicated relationship with your dad. Tell me a little bit about, about that and how that informed making this record. Yeah, I come from a, you know, an archetypical dysfunctional family, really. One of the, one of the fond memories I have, one of the kind of glues, glues that glued the, the relationship my, together with me and my father is his love of radio and love of electronics. He was a radio engineer in the Air Force when he was a young man. And he um, kept that to, that to love of radio and radio engineering alive for his entire life, really. And so he and I would sit around the kitchen table talking about and designing and building radios and then plugging them into this big antenna we had in the back garden and, and spinning the dial and tuning in stations from around the world. And that's something I've always loved to do ever since then. He inspired in me a love of electronics. And to this day, I still tinker with radios, build radios, play with radios, radio something 
really a technology I've, I've, I've always absolutely loved and had a passion for. So yeah, that was the kind of, that was the sort of backdrop really. I mean, the, the, the radio technology was the backdrop for the album really as much as, you know, building kit, the building radios of my father. But uh, it, it's inspired me in many, many different ways, really. It's been a kind of constant in my life. For example, it was it was my political awakening of sorts, I guess, because uh, many uh, foreign language stations or foreign na national foreign stations also do news transmissions in English as part of their soft power right. efforts. And uh, so I come from quite a traditional uh, south of England family, you know, kind of centre right politics and uh, and uh, my dad ended up working for the BBC, which is, you know, the very kind of mainstream organisation. And so we were getting a very homogenous, shall we say, news feed through from all the various news sources. And it never really occurred to me that that wasn't simply the truth, you know, and that there might be another any other alternatives to the uh, to those uh, to those news sources that I was getting. And it was listening to um, these foreign language English broadcasts of the news, you know, when I was a young kid, that was a real wake up call. I was like, oh, I see. So that, you know, <laughs> what I, the, the news I'm getting isn't necessarily the only interpretation of these events. They, uh, other people may have other ideas about what, what, what all this means, you know, so that was the start of my journey to the center left, I guess, from the center right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I bounced on through the center left quite far to the left in my young days. But that's a remarkable experience to have because, you know, even yeah. even here in the States, we have our various biased news organizations. And, you know, unless you actively go out and look for other interpretations and other, you know, trains of thought, you may not even realize that there are uh, other interpretations out there. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with those other interpretations, but it does challenge you to... Uh, to look again at the interpretations you're being given at home and, and, and examine them a bit more critically, you know, and that, that kind of critical thinking, as I say, it led me to question what I actually did believe and that it, uh, it, made, me, it made me reject the kind of centre-right uh, politics of my parents and move further to the left. And it, that's something, you know, that's happened again and again in life, really. I mean, we definitely as a band found that... Uh, we, we didn't really know our home, you know, where we came from. We didn't really know the England and Great Britain particularly well until we left it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was when we did, we did a six month tour of America, or God knows how many months it was, it felt like about six years, but we, we spent a considerable amount of time trying to break America, something we never succeeded in doing. But uh, um, we were shipped off by the record company and, you know, we all got sort of homesick in different ways. And it's very different touring somewhere as different as America. You, you think that, you know, going to a country like France or Germany that doesn't speak English would mean that those sort of places would be very different. But in fact, you know, they say Americans and English are divided by a common language. And that's kind of, you know, <laughs> something that we, right. we definitely felt like we'd landed on a different planet in the States when the values were different and, you know, the way of life was different and the kind of uh, the culture is very different and it made us look again at the UK and kind of think, well, what what do we like about England and what don't we like about England? And you know, so we had the similar kind of thought process all over again, really, as young men and that, that kind of 
led us to dram quite dramatically change our sound and and uh, you know the, the the kind of music we we decided we were going to make. I watched a couple of documentaries on YouTube about the band, and you know the the strip the description of you guys in the U.S. sounds like it had to have been horrible, you know, horrifying. It's, it's it sounds like it was terrible, and I don't know if it was just a matter of if it was just homesick or whether the, the music culture was in a different place, what is the, the truth of that? No, actually, America was very kind to us. I think the problem was, the uh, reality was, our first manager had just taken all our money, stolen all our money, effectively, and put, put everything in his wife's name and declared himself bankrupt, something it turns out he'd done previously. So um, we were absolutely broke. One of the, the band was nearly over at that point, as you can imagine. And one of the ways we dug ourselves out of that hole is we signed a merchandising deal with a UK merchandiser on the condition that we go and tour outside the UK for about six months, I think it was. And uh, so we spent a lot of that time in America and it was the wrong time to tour America. We were we were we weren't very well known even in the UK and that, that you know, that's probably where we should have spent the six months touring. So we were playing an awful lot of venues, you know, a lot of travel from venue to venue, playing sort of half empty clubs. And, uh, you know, pe people didn't know our name. We were very, very underground. And it was just, you know, while there was, while we had a, as I say, America was very, very kind to us. We, we should have been a lot more grateful than we were. But, uh, um, you know, that was the, the reality of it. We were kind of forced away from home to do to do a tour that really it was painfully obvious was a bit of a waste of time both for us and for the American audiences <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was kind of that if there was a downside it was that really you know but the upsides were we we got to know America very well we had some some fantastic experiences we did play some great gigs they weren't all half empty but uh, rather <laughs> too many of them were <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you, that you say when you came back, you realize, you know, you, you don't realize, you know, where you come from until you're gone. One of the yeah. things I think is, is so interesting about Blur's music is, is that it's so unapologetically British in, in the same way that like, you know, Ray Davies was with the Kinks or, you know, Paul Weller was with the Jam or it's like for every, you know, songs like Park Life or, or, or Country House, those are very, very British songs unlike like like song two or girls and boys where it, you know that did kind of resonate with people in the states a bulk of what you did was very clear but this, this was not an american type of leaning band well that was a that was certainly a phase we went through at the end of that american tour we came home and we thought well what what actually is in does english pop music sound like you know what does english rock music sound like you know when you sort of trace the genesis of of uh, pop music in the UK, so much of it starts in America, doesn't it? With, you know, blues and rock and roll and all of those things that England just kind of imported, you know, lock, stock and barrel, like the Stones and the Beatles, they were, especially the Stones, they were a, a copycat blues band when they started, when they were playing blues covers, you know, and the Beatles kind of also imported a whole, you know, they, the, very similar what they were playing in Liverpool in the cavern wasn't what they ended up playing you know in Abbey Road <laughs> it was it was American rock and roll American blues and kind of so we think, well, what 
what doubt you know had there not been the second world war and the kind of wholesale importation of american culture what would english music have sounded like what's england's contribution to all of that and you know that's when we started listening to the kinks and and uh, the who and other bands and thinking well is there is there you know uh, that kind of you know, that 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 was sort of genesis of the the us changing our music and and kind of experimenting with that it was a phase we went through where we got bored with that after an album an album or two really and just started playing with other things our music got more experimental you know we went back to crashing guitars again you know because that's really leaping around on stage is what inspired us but uh you know it was a it was an interesting idea and i think it, it took us down to some interesting places but you know we're not doing that now we're not toying with Englishness now that's a, that was all a long time ago you know <laughs> but you know but, but it's but isn't it funny though and, and and I don't even know how people in 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 the UK truly appreciate this Americans didn't really learn much about blues until the English guys started to do it and do it better and then at that point we're like wow this, this blues stuff where does this come from it's like <laughs> well it's ours <laughs> didn't, didn't even realize that the English I mean the the because it was so hard to get all of that stuff, especially the blues records in the UK, they were absolutely treasured here. You know, the the, the albums were all imported, and that you know, when somebody managed to import a new one that nobody had heard, it, everybody came to listen to it. You know, that's that's how I understand it went. So it went from a kind of a culture perhaps not revered at the time in the states to a, a culture immediately revered in the uk and then perhaps fed back again you know so uh, it's funny how these things work isn't it you mentioned the the destitution you guys were were suffering early on with their manager you know basically you know wiping you guys dry but then all of a sudden you know things start to really turn around to to a degree where i don't think many of us in the states can totally understand it the kind of mania that was following you guys around, following Oasis around. I know there's been a lot made of the whole Brit pop war between you guys and Oasis. And and I know that oftentimes these things are created by the media, whether it's to increase sales or, you know, circulation of magazines, whatever it may be. As a guy who was in the mix of all of this, this whole thing between you guys and Oasis, what, what is the truth of what happened? Was there really this rivalry between you guys or was it really just uh, like a media fabrication? It was, uh, you know, the, you have to, you have to put it into context of the music industry in the UK at the time. There, there were three, at, at one point there was four weekly broadsheet music newspapers you know, desperate for column inches, desperate for things to print, because there wasn't that much music going on for all of these for all of these papers to fill it up to fill it up. So the more kind of gossipy kind of nonsense stories were really the mainstay of these papers. So people slagging each other off, people sleeping with each other's girlfriends, you know, people kind of uh, <laughs> falling drunk out of clubs, people getting into fights. That's what these newspapers were full of. Because what can you say about music? Fundamentally, it's very hard to write about music, isn't it? So, so they were all full of tittle-tattle, really. It's just kind of nonsense. And so we were the journalist dream because we would slag off anyone. We didn't care, you know, if you had a record out, we hated it. If you did a gig, we thought it was crap. You know, <laughs> that was, that, that got us, 
I mean, gen genuinely, that that was what we were like. You know, we were desperate to kind of climb to the top of the heap. We just thought we deserved it, and nobody else did. The arrogance of the kind of twenty-year-old man, really. But uh, anyway, so the journalists lapped that up, and of course, eventually, we bumped up against Oasis, who were just as much a, much a bunch of loudmouths as we were, and they gave it back to us. Nobody had ever done that before, you know. We'd come up with kind of witty ways of, of belittling all all of these other bands, and they'd all kind of run away and hid. <laughs> and Oasis were like, bring it on. So, um, you know, the the war of where words was instigated by the two bands, amplified by the media, and then brought to a head when we released our single on the same day. A marketing a marketing idea that we should have really won an award for, but uh, anyway, we didn't. <laughs> But after that, it kind of fizzled out. The the, the upside of it was that uh, it, it pushed both bands into the mainstream, really pushed us both to, to the bottom rung of a very long ladder, which we've both been climbing ever since. But um, the downside is, I guess, we've both been stapled at the hip, really. We're not very similar bands, but, you know, I know it, in every interview I do since for the last God knows how long, 30 years, they've asked me the Oasis question. I have absolutely no doubt they've asked them the blur question. Of course so, they have. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> but how do you not ask it? You know, that's 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 yeah. the that's the thing. If you if I don't ask it, people say, Well, you should have asked them about uh, Oasis. Yeah, I know I should have. But you know I, I'm fine with it, you know, I'm absolutely fine with it. I don't mind talking about anything. I don't care. <laughs> but to have that kind of mania, whether it's, you know, whether, again, it's it's the media or the fans that are lapping it up or whatever, you guys are at, at that point in your career selling a hell of a lot of records. And, and suddenly, like you said, you guys go from having no money to being destitute to suddenly there's success. And even though it took a long time to get there, sometimes, you know, that moment between struggle and success is like as quick as flipping a, a light switch. For a lot of people that go through that experience, they often find it kind of difficult to manage. And in a way, you know, I hear people trying to grab for every coping mechanism they can. Some of them are healthy and oftentimes they're not. It could be drugs or, or alcohol. And certainly you've not been immune to that. You've had those kinds of issues before. Tell me a little bit about it, trying to manage that kind of success. You're a young guy, you're in your 20s, and all of a sudden you're all over the place. Tell me about that if you can. Actually, you know, it, it, I, I, I didn't struggle. I've never struggled with successes. You know, that's always felt very natural. It's failure that I've always struggled with. That always feels very unfair. <laughs> so uh, there's a kind of inequality of arms there, I think. But, yeah, it and... Well, I guess our notoriety certainly increased. Our finances didn't improve for decades. You know, the the, the kind of record deal we were signed under meant that uh, we didn't really see see any money for from selling records for twenty years. Really, mm -hmm. it wasn't really till the band stopped releasing records, and the record company were no longer able to charge promotional items to our account that uh, we finally recouped, finally started making any money. And that was relatively recently, you know, <laughs> in the history of the band. So, uh, but yeah, it was, and, and the kind of the fame from 
the Battle of Britpop faded relatively quickly, you know, peaked at uh, us winning a lot, a lot of awards. Um, you know, we were on the front of all the magazines and everything, but pretty soon you're kind of yesterday's news and they move on to something else. And that was probably for the best, you know, because some of us in the band were quite comfortable with that kind of, you know, being sort of teenage heartthrobs. Others of us in the band weren't comfortable with that at all. So, uh, you know, I, I, I was, a, I was always relatively comfortable with whatever happened, but, uh, it certainly wasn't, didn't feel like that kind of crazy roller coaster. You know, I, in my film composing career, I worked on the Bross documentary when the screaming stops bros were an 80s band who literally went from being there were two very very good looking young uh young brothers twin brothers and they went literally from being nobodies to the the biggest band in the country to nobodies in the space of about a year you know <laughs> literally a couple of the most famous faces on the planet ever so briefly you know and they were damaged by that well we never were we were yeah our, our journey was much gentler than that. It's very hard to complain about it, really. And they, I, for me, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't something I had to cope with. You know, I had other things going on that I had to cope with. One of the things that uh, that I found in, in, in researching was that, and I mentioned this earlier, that the, the things that you've done outside of Blur are probably every bit as interesting as the stuff that you did in Blur, if not more so. So that, you know, the band goes in on hiatus. I think it's 2006 or somewhere around there. And then all of a sudden you become an attorney and then you start working in a criminal department of a law firm. Suddenly you're into politics. Then you're a pilot. Then you're, you're involved with NASA. All these things are going, are going on. And it's not necessarily the direction that you expect out of most musicians. Tell me about what you were thinking as you're getting out of out of that spotlight and, and, and trying to make the most of, of what to do next. Well, I've always done whatever seems interesting at the time, you know, I've got, got no master plan, as you can tell from my CV. So, <laughs> uh, so and at, at different times in my life, I've been grabbed by different, by the you know, different enthusiasms and definitely, you know, when the band wound down, the first thing I thought was, well, I'll start another band, which I did for a little bit, but really I thought to, you know, do I really want to start again from the bottom now when I've, you know, when I've just, I've just come out of, you know, that incredible experience, do I really want to start again? And I was doing various other things. I had an animation company that I've been doing kind of in parallel. But anyway, I got, I got through a, a long series of coincidences. I uh, ended up uh, working one day a week at a criminal, a criminal uh, legal aid, so a publicly funded criminal defence firm in uh, East London and just fell in love with the work they did there and was just in awe of the lawyers that, you know, issued big city, you know, million pound salaries to, to work with underprivileged people and, you know, in low income families, low income areas and, and to, you know, try and defend them. And, and see them see them, you know many of them obviously had done what they were accused of doing so you know try and kind of help them through the system if they're going to jail try and help, help them with that i just you know it's such worthwhile work you know these are people despised by society but often they've got where they've ended up 
through making poor choices and god knows we've all done that so you know there was an element of there but for the grace of god go i you know so anyway i just felt i just thought it was so amazing what these people were doing i started volunteering there eventually they said uh, do you want to work here so I, well nothing else to do give it a go <laughs> you know as i say it seemed interesting and uh, i got sucked into it really and got decided that in order to do it properly, I was going to have to qualify as a lawyer myself, which I did and uh, worked at that, you know, found a job at another firm and, and did that for about five years. So in mm. total, so it was, you know, really, really interesting time. Um, very d difficult to manage, though, because by the time I'd qualified and was working at this firm, Blur had decided it was going to get back together again, you know, and, and do some more shows. Well, I, I could just about manage that because at the start we were just playing festivals, you know, mostly at the weekend. So I would leave my, take my suit off on Friday afternoon, get, you know, go down to Heathrow, get on a plane, go to a festival, play it on Saturday night, come home Sunday come in Monday morning, put my suit back on and work as a lawyer. And, that that worked okay. Um, it was manageable. I, I was, you know, it, it, I would have burnt out doing it eventually because you can't work at that pace forever. And then uh, we decided, for one reason or another, to put a record out, and that put paid to that. Really, and putting, you know, making a record and releasing a record is a full time job. It's, it's, there's no way you can be a lawyer at the same time as that. So I had to sadly choose between one or the other, and it was. It was always going to be music, so that's really where my heart is. So, uh, um, but I should I should do something, you know. That I learned a lot of useful skills, a lot of amazing life information that they should teach in schools. I mean, you know, I learned how how property works, you know, how mortgages work, how pensions work, what a will is, all this kind of stuff that uh, people don't actually know. I hadn't, you know, certainly I didn't know. The ins and outs of all of that and you know how the financial markets work what a company is how you start a company you know all of that kind of stuff it's like wow this is this is the secret information that they don't tell you in life <laughs> this is stuff about how the world actually works if you knew then what you know now you'd never would have signed that first contract <laughs> <laughs> well i'd still we would have signed such a bad contract we signed but you know we'd have done anything to be famous we'd have done whatever it took it's, it's kind of hard for me to imagine you're working on someone's criminal defense and you have to tell them, listen, you're going to have to spend some more time in jail because I'm going on tour. <laughs> Sorry about the, the years in prison you're going to be spending, but music calls. Yeah, well, that's, that's, what I, that's, that's what I had to avoid. You know, when you're, when you're somebody's lawyer, you have to put them first in, in everything. You know, their interests come first, yours come second. That's the deal. So I, I wanted to avoid a situation where there was going to be some kind of conflict there. Somebody can turn around and say, or even if the, the you know, the, even if it, it would never have happened, but even for somebody to be, able to, to be able to say that's what it looked like, you know, you skimped on that because you wanted to do this. You also went into politics for a while. And uh, I'm trying to read, it was like a county council seat that you had? Yeah, so that's like the kind of, I suppose it's kind of like state politics in the in the in the states. It's kind of it's the that runs the big organizations like the fire service and the police service and the schools and care homes and that kind of thing. 
So, I mean, I'm assuming that's how it works in the States. We have absolutely no idea, but uh, that's <laughs> certainly how it works You're, here. Pretty, you've you're got, pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to, you have the sort of towns and district levels that run the, the local, the, the rubbish collection and that kind of thing. And then, but all the big ticket items are run by larger, a larger kind of county-based organisations. And so I ran for, I'm not really a politician, I'm a political activist, you know, I, I knock on doors and in my community and try and find problems to solve. That's my, that's my politics. And so I found, I found it really useful to run for election, even though running for election is a right pain in the backside to do. <laughs> um, it gives you, it gives you the ability to actually fix some of these problems, you know, to, rather than having to pass them up the chain, which is often what you have to do if you're, if you're somebody that just knocks on doors. I was able to pick up casework with um, these big uh, organizations like care homes or you know children's services. The casework was often quite interesting. It was people who were often in touch with the county council department but had got for some reason or another had kind of fallen through the cracks or they'd had an adverse decision against them and these can have really serious consequences if you're a carer for say a disabled relative or something and suddenly your your allowance is cut off that can have major consequences both for you and for the person you're caring for i mean of course you know turns your life on its head so i i found and you know that often the rules are weird and uh, based on you know how the world used to work rather than the work and often that the decision makers don't have much discretion to uh, to interpret the rules in a more flexible way so trying to you know that's when being a, having a training as a lawyer often helped as i was able to kind of navigate these a little bit and kind of you know see where there are gaps that uh, and that uh, you know the decision could be reversed in a more favorable way to my resident your advocacy work has never really stopped but but as far as an elected position you did eventually walk away from it what what was it that uh, that motivated you to stop doing that it was a variety of things but covid was the main thing i, I had to move house but that was okay I, because of a relative and a situation i had to move house um to be near the relative and so uh, but it was okay because i could commute between the two relatively easily i still had a flat in my uh, an apartment in my ward and so i was able to you know go go from one to the other and that all worked fairly well and then covid happened and that was no longer possible and i found i was you know for the for for an unknown period of time i was going to have to try and work by remote control it just didn't feel right so i i found somebody in my in my ward, who was a really excellent campaigner and really passionate about it, and I, I asked him if he would take over from me. And so I, so I then supported him in his election, and luckily he got elected and is doing a great job. So I need to ask, with all of with all of that, all of a sudden, Blur decides, let's get back together. Let's let's perform some dates. Let's let's tour a little bit. Tell me about how that comes about for you. I mean, obviously, you've got other things going on you've got uh, you know a, a record coming out you, you mentioned you have some uh, uh some refugees uh, living in your house things are pretty busy for you right now the yeah. idea of getting back on the road sounds like a, an awful lot to take on yeah i always have an awful lot going on to be honest that's not it's not much different to be honest but uh yeah it, the idea was floated sometime some years ago actually it was 
the, the people that run the Wembley Stadium suggested that we might like to play a show there and everybody was like eh, maybe you know who knows let's see see what happens kick the can down the road as you do you know obviously you can't do it this year can't do it next year or maybe we'll do it you know and they kick the can down the road so far that covid happened and then suddenly we couldn't do it at all you know and that was really the that was really at the point when everybody could you know the first opportunity that we really had where everybody was free and available and willing so um, then we had a bit of a grudge, you know, well, that stopped us, COVID has stopped us doing so that kind of heart toughened everyone's resolve. But then um, post COVID, suddenly playing shows was very, very difficult. Still is, you know, and the UK had left the EU, a lot of the music industry relied on, uh, on the workers from around Europe coming over and, you know, suddenly that they'd all gone home and it was just, you know, the, all kinds of problems so where, whereas these big shows how they work as it turns out i only found this out by going through this process with Wembley. but how it works is you express an interest in a certain you, we don't but our agent expresses an interest in a certain date and you go on a waiting list you see so mm. ordinarily there might be two or three bands on the waiting list for each day when it when it's available for a, for a music performance and then at some point, one of the bands will go, right, let's push the button. And so then the, uh, the stadium go, goes to the waiting list and goes from the top and says, right, you know, this band has pushed the button. Are you in or are you out? We're out. Okay, next. This band has pushed the button. Are you in or are you out? We're out. Next. And then if you're lucky, the band that has decided to push the button, everybody else will drop out. <laughs> and uh, they will get the gig if they're unlucky the first band goes oh really oh yeah in that case yes we're in we're in so, but that that normally works in normal times because you know you'd express an interest in three or four dates and you probably get one of them well post-covid there were like 15 in the waiting list on each date you wow. know minimum so you can express an interest in half a dozen shows and the likelihood is you'd still get none of them so then we were like, oh, my God, this is, this is not going to happen, is it? What's going on? What on earth is going on here? It's like the, the universe is trying to stop the band getting back together again. <laughs> so that went on for years <laughs> to the point where I rang around everybody and I said, look, I've just spoken to our agent. I'm afraid it's not going to happen for another year. We're going to have to, we're going to have to, you know, put it all on hold. Maybe we'll try again next year. Maybe we'll have better luck next year. And everybody went, oh. Well, that's disappointing. Oh, well, never mind. We're used to it now. Kick it forward another year. <laughs> Two days later, the agent rang me and said, no, 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 we, 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 it's going ahead. It's going ahead. <laughs> hey, you've got one of the dates. I don't know how, but you've got one of the dates. Yeah, and you're going to sell it out in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the next thing. We thought, well, is anybody even going to care? You're right. So we've got this Wembley date. Is anybody even going to care? And uh, our agent said he, th he thought they would, but you could never be sure because some some big bands like the the uh, a, a big band had just uh, announced a tour and sold half a million tickets in about five minutes, you know. But some other big bands had just announced a tour and then had to cancel it right. quietly a few months later <laughs> when you know, nobody was interested. It's like well, which category do we fall in? So. Um, Luckily, we fell in the first category, but it was touch and go. We were, we were all kind of, certainly I was on the edge of my seat and the tickets went on sale, but what's going to happen? <laughs> but then 
So I logged in as if I wanted to buy a ticket and that the agent had explained that there would be a waiting list, you know, and um, depending on how many people had already logged in, you'd be in your queue. And I, so I logged in at the, at the witching hour when the tickets went on sale and immediately I was number 43,000 in the queue. I thought, <laughs> we're there. Okay, that's it. I put the, I shut the laptop, walked away, <laughs> job done. And then as luck would have it, not for, well, I don't know if luck's quite the right word, but anyway, there was a charity, a charity concert on the day after they were trying to, a big charity were trying to put a, put a benefit show on. And uh, so they've been negotiating with us. We say, well, we don't, we've got a stage in there. Do you want to use our stage? We can you use the lights. We could split some costs and, you know, make it all a bit more easier for both of us. Trucking costs, you know, we'll pay the thing to come and you, you pay for it to be taken away. Great. So it's great. We've got something to do the day after. We can go to this charity event, you see, and then uh, <laughs> our gig sold out. And then the charity phoned and said, oh, yeah, we, we can't do it anymore. This, that and the other has happened. Yeah, we, we're going to pull out. So then the agent rang and said, they're asking if you want to do a second date at Wembley. <laughs> so you've got the stage there. You've got the lights there. So, you know, that's all going to be there anyway. And you want to do another date? Is that nearly sold out too? <laughs> it's doing well. I don't know exactly how well, but uh, yeah, it'll certainly sell out by the time by the time we turn up. I think one of the things that's, that's actually really encouraging to hear, I mean, first of all, yes, you're, you're bidding for venues and all that other stuff, but it's to me it's more encouraging to know that the four of you are still getting along. It's not like there's, you know, there's any in any real infighting that would you, know, you got to <laughs> negotiate between the four of you to say, do we want to do it while you know one guy does and two guys don't? You know, it, it's you guys are still pretty much a united front. That's kind of a cool thing and unheard of after thirty five plus years. You know, we have our moments, but uh, yeah, by and large, and there's you know. Normally the things that stand in the way are number one, everybody's very busy. So, you know, a gig is never a gig. A gig takes a year, you know, you've got to do all this other stuff that to run up to a show. Then, you know, you there's other tours go in and all this. So we, we know from long experience, if somebody comes along and says, do you want to play a gig over there? What they're asking is, do you want to spend a year doing blur? <laughs> that's all they're asking. So that's a very different question to be able to say yes to. So, you, you know, when they say that, they're normally talking quite a long time in the future so that we, the diaries can be cleared. And the second thing is we don't want to repeat ourselves. So the thing has to be an interesting thing that they're suggesting. Otherwise, it's like, well, we've done that, you know. Yeah. Somebody had run up and said, do you want to headline the Isle of Wight Festival? We'd have gone, we'd have done, we've done the Isle of Wight Festival. You know, it's a lovely festival. It was great fun, but do we, you know, is that gonna do, we want to do that again? So people are looking for, you know, our agent is always looking for interesting things that will tempt us back out on the road again. <laughs> and uh, of course, originally it was uh, 2009, I think the first was the first sort of reunion show, if that is such a thing. But uh, that was when uh, in Hyde Park, this big park in the centre of London, they just started putting on shows like first time ever put on big rock shows and uh, they wanted to know if we would headline the first the first of these shows so it's like a mini festival right in the center of london amazing thing and they said do you want to headline the first one we said, cool you can't say no to that that's like you know we're setting up a festival in your hometown do you want to headline it the the only answer to that is yes um, <laughs> 2012 was when London won the Olympics. Again, we got this call. They're, they're asking if you want to 
headline the party at the end of the Olympics. What were you going to say? You say no to that? <laughs> of course you want to headline the party at the end of the Olympics. You know, it's all of these things that, that they're the things that uh, make us sit upright, you know, get excited again about the, about the, about the project and, you know, the possibilities. And, and Wembley was one of those. It's an iconic thing. Never done it. You know, probably never likely to do it with, with any of our other projects, I would imagine. And uh, it's like, you know, the Madison Square Garden or the Hollywood Bowl or <laughs> Budokan in Tokyo. It's one of those sort of iconic things that you saw on album sleeves when you were a kid, you know, sort of uh, just seemed like a crazy, a crazy thing that, that was impossible for normal mortals to achieve. You know, <laughs> and they, they're offering it to us. So the, the, the final question has to be, is this an indicator that new music could come out? I mean, would you, are you guys talking about maybe writing songs together and producing something, or is this just touring at this moment? Something will happen, I'm sure. Quite what remains to be seen. But uh, usually when we, do, uh, when we do live shows, we like to have some new music to play. So we'll just have to see. It's early days. We've just, we've just really put the tour to bed there's a there's a another um there's some more dates to announce later on in that year which we're just sorting out now and yes i think then thoughts will turn to well, what else we might do and we shall see well i hope they're going to give you at least a little bit of time to play some of from radio songs sadly uh i think this year is now spoken for <laughs> that was my that was my vague plan was to take it on tour in the summer but sadly yeah. Some other project intervened. I'll be taking that on tour in the summer instead. <laughs> so next year now, I should put another another solo album out in the spring next year and start and, oh, and do as much touring next year as I possibly can. Dave, it's great. Yeah. It's great to talk to you. You know, best of luck with the the record. Like I said, I think Radio Songs is a, is a fantastic effort in your part. You really, really like that Thank record, you. and it's good to have Blur back too. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very nice to talk to you. Nice talking to you too, Dave. Thank you very much. The name of Dave Roundtree's new record is called Radio Days, and it really is fantastic. Keep your eyes out for additional tour dates and new music from Blur, maybe sometime within the next year. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to share it, like it, review it, and tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think, and thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.